my very first overseas experience and my very first mission experience occurred in the summer of 73, 1973. Perhaps I've said a little bit about that here already, or some of you know about it. I went to a little tiny mission hospital in the country, well, it was a province of Ethiopia at that time, called Eritrea, which is now its own independent country in East Africa, a little tiny village in a remote area, just one road passing through it. And that little mission hospital had been there for probably 20 or 30 years, maybe a little bit longer. Very lovely brick building, very practical, very um, a, a very good service to the community in which it found itself. The hospital and the mission station was run by a group of missionaries, not a big group. There were a couple of doctors, a couple of nurses, and then there were a couple of ministers and a couple of evangelists. It was run by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I was there for three months to work as an x-ray technician. While I was there, I, of course, got introduced to the whole work of missions. And one of the things that surprised me and, to be perfectly honest, shocked me was the amount of conflict that there was on that little group, that little missionary team. And the conflict centered around this fundamental question. We have only so much money. Our budget is only this much. What do we spend it on? And there were basically two main items to spend it on. One was evangelism. So you'd go out to the villages and you'd preach and you'd, you'd buy materials and it would cost for travel and for personnel and to hire evangelists, evangelism. And the other, of course, was the hospital because there was the building that needed to be maintained and there was equipment that needed to be bought and there was staff that needed to be hired and we needed growth in the hospital because more and more people were coming. So the conflict was between what they called the word ministry, the evangelism, the ministry to the soul, and the ministry to the body, to the physical needs. At that time, we used the terms word and deed ministry. And I don't remember many details. I, one thing that remains in my mind is in, in a couple of meetings that I attended, a high level of conflict, including tears. And also that when I got home, I was very, very much shocked by the fact that missionaries, who are supposed to, of course, be a notch holier than all the rest of us, could engage in so much conflict. And that was my first introduction to this tension that, again, in the time that I was growing up and was getting my education, that was existing in the Christian world between this idea of Jesus as Savior as, and Jesus as Lord. Jesus can't be just your Savior. He must also be your Lord. And that was a, a huge area of conflict, a huge area of trying to figure out what it meant that you held those things together if you could. What, what did that look like? And I was struck by these sentences in uh, Diana Butler Bass's book on page 124, where her friend Jimmy at the college at which she was, I believe it was Biola. She doesn't name the college, but I think it was Biola. 
for those of you who are in the know on those kind of things. Jimmy said, what would it look like if we picked up the cross every day, if we died to self, if Jesus was Lord of all? And Diana writes, I did not know. This was probably in the mid to late 70s. And that resonated with me because in those years, I didn't know either. No one had really talked much with me about what it meant that Jesus was Lord. Savior, I had plenty of. But Lord was a different thing. What does Jesus as Lord mean or Maybe to start, what did it mean back in the time when the disciples called Jesus Lord and when they wrote about him being Lord in the New Testament? And I want to quote at a little bit of length from Diana Butler Bass because she says it better than I could. And uh, I'm also going to project it on the screen so that you can listen and follow along. But it's very helpful to get a perspective on how people looked at things back then. Early Christians often proclaimed their faith in three words, Jesus is Lord. Historians refer to it as an early creedal affirmation, but it was really more of a theological slogan. At its simplest level, the Greek term kyrios, meaning Lord or Master, quite literally meant the one who owns you. Slaves called their masters Lord. Students often referred to revered teachers as master, and workers might call their employers Lord. In a world, are you sharing the screen, Christopher? Just a reminder of that. In a world where millions were held in slavery, and millions of others lived in poverty and powerlessness at the bottom of a rigid social hierarchy, Claiming Jesus as Lord announced one's liberation from oppression. Jesus is Lord made sense in an empire of slaves as submitting to his lordship amounted to spiritual freedom, especially in the new community called the church where, apparently, female slaves held leadership positions and Roman social status was upended. Everything... And everyone in the Roman Empire was, however, owned by a different master, the emperor, who had ultimate authority, power, and control over all. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright makes clear, the emperor was the Kyrios, the lord of the world, the one who claimed the allegiance and loyalty of subjects throughout his wide empire. When slaves and women said that Jesus was Lord, they surely meant that Jesus was now their master, the one who truly owned them, no matter the claims of earthly masters. But because Caesar was Lord of all, saying Jesus is Lord also carried political connotations, especially when those who professed Jesus is Lord also refused to say Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord meant far more then Jesus is my personal master. It meant if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. 
Writers of the New Testament use Kyrios more than 700 times. And you may remember from three weeks ago when we talked about Savior, that the word Savior, especially in the Gospels, only appears a couple of times. So the writers of the New Testament use this word Lord way more than they use the word Savior. Many of those times specifically to refer to Jesus. Yet Kyrios was a startling word to describe a wandering, miracle-working rabbi. Lord, Master, Ruler, God, all Kyrios, each signifying one who holds dominion over the lives and fates of those under his sway. Jesus is Lord was subversive and empowering, a form of submission one could choose in a world of otherwise little choice a way of life that resulted in finding oneself by giving oneself totally and unreservedly to this crucified Jewish peasant, Kyrios. And so what you see in this quote, these set of quotes, is both the personal side, Jesus is my master, He's my Lord, and that's what the slave said, that's what the, that's what the woman said, that's what the hired servant said. That's what all the people who were on the bottom of the, of the Roman social and political and economic structure could say, I now don't have this housemaster or even Caesar as my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And that changes everything for me. Again, it's hard for us to imagine in the position that we are right now, but imagine being a slave to a master, especially if that was an abusive relationship, and you could say, that man is not really my master. Jesus is my Lord. What a liberation that would be. But it also has these political and economic and environmental implications. He is Lord of all. Not just me. He's Lord of everything. He's Lord of my master. And he's Lord of Caesar. And that also changes everything about how I look at life and how I live my life, where, who I am, where I am, and where we're going. And we are. And where we... And, and, as a people... I'd like to read this morning from Philippians 2. I could have chosen many, many passages this morning, but I want to read from Philippians 2, a passage that I'm pretty sure is quite familiar to many of you because it combines this, this personal and, this, and this, this cosmic aspect of Jesus being Lord. You may know that uh, this particular uh, section, especially the last half of it, is most likely not written by Paul himself, but it was an ancient song or an ancient creed that was used in the church uh, to refer to Jesus, and Paul is just taking it over. Read along if you have your Bible from Philippians 2, or it should appear also on the screen. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, 
being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And here begins, I think, the song or the creed. Who, in being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Stanley Hallowell's uh, uh, theologian says this, Only the one true God can take the risk of ruling by relying on the power of humility and love. So in this wonderfully rich and deep passage from, from Philippians, we see all of these elements that we've just briefly mentioned coming together. Jesus himself as the Lord of all, whose lordship is characterized by the fact that he lets go of what he could grasp and humbles himself and puts himself under the other and serves in humility. And because of that, he is exalted to be the Lord of all. The, name, the highest place in heaven, given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And maybe you remember, if you read this chapter of Diana's on lordship, that, that she comments on this every knee should bow, that her the, uh, professor of theology, I believe it was at seminary or college, I don't remember exactly which one, said to her, every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly. And her hope, of course, my hope, of course, is that every knee will bow willingly. Because that's finally what God's purpose is, that every knee will bow willingly. God, only this true God, only this kind of a God, can take the risk of ruling by relying on the power of humility and love. And God exalts him, this Jesus, to the highest place, so that one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is what? Lord. See what a central theme that is. We tend, at least if I look back on those years when I was studying and was at the beginning of my ministry years, and this conflict between Savior and Lord, we tend to hear the demand that Jesus is our Lord, because there's, there's a demand 
uh, encapsulated in that in that creed, we tend to feel that it's a burden. I don't know if you experience this. When I hear someone speak passionately about Jesus as Lord and he's Lord of everything and, and you need to give your whole life to him and you need to serve him, nothing held back. And in those early days for me, it was literally nothing held back. Literally nothing. And our great example was maybe some of you remember this in the early 1950s, I believe 52 or 53, there were five missionaries down in South America that were killed by the Alka Indians. You remember them? Nate Saint was one of them. Um, Elliot, I forget his first name. Jim Elliot. That was held up. If Jesus is your Lord, that means that you finally should be willing to go and leave your country and leave your family and leave your possessions behind and go into the most difficult of circumstances and if necessary, let it cost you your life. And there are certain personalities, and I think mine is one of those, that like to take risks and challenges and did that. But it can feel like a burden. I'm being called to, I must. If Jesus is Lord, then I must. But you can also feel burdened in another way, and that's with a burden of guilt. Jim Elliot did it. Why am I sitting back here in my comfortable armchair watching the World Series? Or she did it. The early missionary to Nigeria, who was like our big example, Johanna Veenstra. Some of you may remember that name. When as a single lady in 1919... to central Nigeria, left everything behind. And 14 years later died there as the result of an appendectomy. Say, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm here and I, my life's pretty comfortable and things are going pretty well. I feel guilty. What are the implications for us today that Jesus is Lord? And I'd like to mention two of them to you, and I, I mean them very, very positively. In no way guilt-inducing. If Jesus is Lord, then we have hope. If Jesus is Lord, we can be hopeful people. Because if Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. If, if Jesus is Lord, no earthly kingdom or empire is. If Jesus is Lord, no government is, however democratic it may claim to be, 
or authoritarian. It may be. If Jesus is Lord, Satan isn't. You feel overwhelmed by Satan sometimes. He isn't Lord. If Jesus is Lord, the kingdom of darkness is not Lord. If Jesus is Lord, the bully at your school is not Lord. If Jesus is Lord, the disease with which you struggle is not Lord. If Jesus is Lord, that person who's holding you back at school or at work or in the community, that person that's standing in your way is not Lord. If Jesus is Lord, the one who's abusing you is not Lord. If Jesus is Lord, the liberals aren't. And if Jesus is Lord, the conservatives aren't. No political party is. And if Jesus is Lord, death isn't Lord. And I would like to submit to you that if you would let that sink into your head and heart, your way of living and thinking about things would change. If Jesus is Lord, then we can be hopeful people. And if Jesus is Lord, then our life has meaning. You remember, perhaps if you read the chapter that Diana speaks, and I found this just perfectly amazing, about one of her early mission experiences. Well, a couple of them. One of them was in a Mexican village, but the other one was in, a, in the Netherlands, which, of course, I know something about. And you remember that she talks about uh, going into this house of this, of this older Dutch widower and having the, um, the, the, her, her mission for that day was to clean his kitchen. And... I can tell you that this is true. There are some people who don't keep their, their kitchens clean. You don't know any, I'm sure, if you have anything to do with the Dutch community, you don't know anyone who doesn't keep their kitchen clean. But there are Dutch people who don't keep their kitchens clean. They actually live in the Netherlands. They're there. And this kitchen was a mess. And she spent this whole day cleaning this kitchen. And then as she left, and as she reflected on the day, she writes this about it. I had not brought Jesus to anyone. Instead, my host had brought Jesus to me as he welcomed me and invited my heart to be cleansed along with the kitchen. There was something of me that got saved that day. Not the other way around. And I must tell you that I was exactly in that same situation. The Dutchman was a, name, was a man by the name of Sam Tolsma. He was about 10 years older than me. He'd been, a, he'd been a journalist and he'd been a reporter actually in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And he spoke absolutely perfect, accent-free American English. And I spent a lot of time with him. And he was an alcoholic. And he was on welfare, but very intelligent, 
very smart, read a lot, was just a well-traveled well person. But he had trouble keeping his apartment clean. And I still remember at least once and maybe more than once that I, together with someone else, was in his kitchen cleaning the grease off the stove and off the sink and washing the dishes and doing all that stuff. And in Sam, in all the, the meaninglessness and hopelessness of that task, because we, as we began to know Sam, we began to know we would do it this time and then there would be the next time. And we'd do it the next time and there would be the next time. But in that meeting with Sam, you meet Jesus. And that kitchen and that little home, that little apartment becomes a sacred place. And it does that because Jesus is Lord. Jesus being Lord gives meaning to that work, that job, that looks nothing at all like flying an airplane into the Alka Indians and being killed by the Alkas and having books written about you. If Jesus is Lord, getting out of bed in the morning means something. If Jesus is Lord, really loving my spouse, my children, my parents, my friends, has value. If Jesus is Lord, the mundane tasks of every day, whether they be at home or whether they be at work or wherever they are, the things you just have to grind out every day, carry deep significance. If Jesus is Lord, my entertainment and my hobbies are worthy to enjoy. If Jesus is Lord, my work, my profession, whatever it is, even if I'm working in a five below, has real impact. If Jesus is Lord, my suffering is not in vain. If Jesus is Lord, my struggles with sin and temptation are worth putting up, it's worth putting up that fight. If Jesus is Lord, using my gifts and talents in all the ways that God has given me to do them leads to greatness. If Jesus is Lord, the secret ways in which I serve that no one else will ever see really count. If Jesus is Lord, my commitment to be part of and contribute to the community at every level, my family, my church, my work community, my society, to go vote on Tuesday, is of eternal value. If Jesus is Lord, and I don't care what situation you are in today, 
I don't care how deep your suffering is. I mean, I care about it, but what I mean is, <laughs> however deep it is, if Jesus is Lord, then you can have hope that that suffering is not Lord, and you can have meaning that every effort you do together with Jesus and together with his Holy Spirit to fight your way and struggle your way through it, however much you you, you, you fall back and, and, and struggle, it all has meaning. Because at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And this is not fear. This is not punishment. This is joy that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the question is, is Jesus Lord? And I don't mean, is he Lord? I'm telling you, he is Lord. The question is, do you and do I believe it? And I mean, really believe it. 